Well, hello everybody and welcome back to another episode of the My Love of Golf podcast. My name's Roscoe, your host, and sitting virtually alongside the good man, the great man himself, yes, it is the one and only... A lot of things that are aging pretty quickly at the moment, uh, Rocket. You know, people putting out over the weekend uh, that we're back at playing golf this week. Well, you know, come 12.30 yesterday when Daniel Andrews made the announcement that we're not back playing golf, that aged pretty quickly. But one thing that doesn't age at all is that music when you're here joining me, Rocket. How are you, buddy? I'm very good. Uh, unofficially brought to you by the uh, Pro Simmon Cavity Backs, which was my first uh, official brand new set of clubs when I was 13. Well... I'm glad, uh, I'm glad you asked and I'm glad you told us that uh, the Pro Sim and Cavity Backs were your first official set of golf clubs when you were 13 back in the day. It's, a, it's an interesting topic, Rocket, and you know you touched on it last week when you went down the equipment and rollback uh, discussion, which uh, thank you to Matty Molica who tuned in and, and sent us a lovely message to uh, thank us for the US Open review. We do appreciate it any feedback and if you do want to leave us a message we always appreciate that and share it and you know have a little bit of a, a smile but if you want to jump over to itunes and leave us a review that's always appreciated but you did go down that path last week and it sort of uncorked a bit of thinking for you and i think maddie sort of you know every time that he comments you know it makes you think um that's the sort of stature that he's got in in the way that he thinks about the game and equipment that's what the rollback's all about but what were your first clubs like rocket tell take us take us on a little journey back before we start talking about current events and we'll keep this quite short today but uh what, what, what was your your early entry into the world of golf gear uh i used a lot of my grandparents clubs uh actually i think it was my nan's more than anything uh went through probably every golf ball in everyone's bags uh and i think they just got sick and tired of um me using everyone else's clubs and golf balls and they decided to buy me my own so got the Bro Simmon cavity backs. I'll, I have to find a photo of them. Uh, and they were pride and joy. I'm a driver, three wood, five wood, three iron to sandwich. Had some dinky old, oh, I'm trying to remember the blade putter I had. It was like a blade putter and um, had this blue grip on it. The grips on these clubs felt like uh, they weren't expensive, that's for sure. Um, and then I had... And uh, and family knew I loved the shark, so I had a like a spalding sort of it was an official spalt you know, legit spalding bag, but it was a little bit of a knockoff on the tour edition one, and that thing was my pride and joy for a very long time. Um, so one of the the red sort of Coca Cola, yeah, yeah, yeah. red, yep, yeah, loved it, absolutely loved it. And then when I could afford to buy the tour edition balls, couldn't wait to get them. So you were you went down the tour edition uh, pathway. Those golf balls are amazing. So what was the uh, other ball that was rocking in the world of golf back then? Now, we're talking, for those of you that are newer to the game, and when I say newer, probably you know, we're talking in the 2000s at least, but what was when the sport, it was a sporting tour, uh, was it? no, it was a top flight tour edition. Sporting no, top sporting flight. Tour edition. Sporting tour yeah. edition. What was the other ball the other. That, that I was using? What would that have been? The hot dot, maybe? Oh, come on. More advanced than the hot dot. I did use a hot dot back in the day, Rocket. That's Dunlop what 65? No? I'm not that old. <laughs> no one can see you. Don't, don't break the illusion. I'm not that old. Jeepers. Remember weepers. the yellow pinnacles? And of course I'd remember the yellow pinnacles. There was the, um, hot, the hot dot, the rocket. Uh, yes. There was the rocket. There was the rocket. Let me take you back. So we used to play at uh, Cessnock Golf Club. 
we had anywhere between 40 to 70 juniors rocking up every Sunday morning at 7.30 a.m., Johnny Linnitson, what a great man, would put send... Money in the, put, it, put money in the box and... No, no, it was far more advanced than that. We would pay our fees at the start there and, and the Linnitson family basically ran the sub-junior uh, section for us up there at Cessnock Golf Club and it was widely regarded as the best setup in the whole of the Hunter Valley, if not you know Newcastle in the northern part of New South Wales. 40 to 70 juniors every Sunday morning playing for fake crystal bowls that we'd have to give to our parents if you won, but that was yeah. the prize. If you won a hot dot or a rocket... That was a special time, uh, Rodney. That was a very special time. I got lots of I got lots of crystal. Yeah, isn't it funny that, that that's what was <laughs> crystal? I think there might have been some uh, egg and spoon sort of silver cups and stuff like that. Beer jugs, big beer and wine masks, uh, wine wine glasses and stuff like that. Your thirteen year old winning like this six pack of expensive wine glasses. Rod, at Cessnock Golf Club, there was that many juniors. Now, Cessnock's a town of, I think, maybe 16,000 people. And back in the day, we had that many juniors. They built us a, a wing. And they extended the golf club, the clubhouse for us and built us a juniors room. And it had pinball machines, pool table, space invaders. It had the whole lot. It was sensational. And, you know, well, the sad, the very sad part of that story is, um, not to bring it down, but, you know, there is no small Cessnock Golf Club. It's gone. And uh, yeah. and I think when it did go, they had one junior left. So it's uh, it's no, anyway back to back to back in the day. What was your next set of clubs after the Pro Simmons? Uh, the Tommy Armour eight four fives. Yeah. So this is where we start to show the, the difference in age between you and I because they were a second hand club when I came back to the game. When I was looking to get back into the game, they were sort of something that I was looking at going. Oh, it's probably a little bit old, but. Um, so uh, my first set of clubs, second set, the first set of clubs were a 5, 7 and a 9 iron and I think they had uh, maybe steel shafts but they had a coating on them that made it look like they were hickories. They weren't hickories. They barely had a, a rubber grip on it. I think they still had names like Aussie Pickworth on there and I had a 2 wood, so there was no 1 wood. There was a 2 wood, a 5, a 7 and a 9 and a putter and a blue vinyl bag that was sort of like a rectangular uh, shape. Oh, yes, with the, the T things at the front. Yep. And it was before 1981 because I remember we were living in a uh, first house that we lived in in Cessnock that my parents uh, moved to. I had a small one of those when I used to pull around as a kid. Yeah. And and that was my first set of golf clubs. And I didn't really, really have that much interest until we moved a little bit closer to the golf club and I started going to play. Or more so just hang out with Dad on a Sunday afternoon. I think he used to get us out of the house. Um, take me out of the house to give mum a bit of a break and I've spoken about that before but I remember getting the bug for golf and I got a set of Keith Knox, once again a half set, uh, Keith Knox R700s. So again, a two iron, uh, sorry, two wood and I think I had a three iron this time, a three, five, seven, nine. Still no pitching wedge or sand wedge. This is uh, quite relevant because, you know, you think this is how we learned to play a golf rocket, a nine iron. And that's, there's no sand wedge and no pitching wedge and no lob wedge, definitely. So what do you have to do when you've only got a nine-iron? Open up that blade. You've got to learn how to play. Or shut it down and exactly. just try and punch it. And uh, and that's what we're always trying to do. And um, it was it was a great time. And I still remember going down to Sharpie's Golf Shop in uh, Sydney, which is near Central Station. Uh, if you know Sydney and know that golf shop, it's got the big neon sign and it had a guy putting the ball and you could see it from the train station. It was, it was like heaven to me. And <laughs> we got a, I got a new golf bag, I got a five wood and I got a sand wedge. Brosnan Taipan sand wedge and some sort of five wood, which I can't remember. 
And that was my second sort of string of clubs. And then I stayed with Keith Knox. My first full set of clubs were a set of Keith Knox. I can't remember the model name, but it was like an offset cavity back set and I loved those things. But then my first set, proper set for my 16th birthday, uh, dad had a client who was um, in charge of PGF at the time. So there's another oh. another brand. The, the Optimus, did he? Uh, no, they were the – so my dad was a PGF guy. He had the PGF Mark 5s and then the PG, the – PGF, um, so maybe it'd been like a Mark Four and then a Mark Five. So he was like a PGF guy. So he took me to PGF and I got the Aristocrat SB. So SB standing for short blade. Yeah. And I got measured up by um, Richard Mercer. Uh, no, yeah. Alex Mercer. Alex Mercer. Richard Mercer is the golf pro at the Vintage Country Club now, which is still up home in the Hunter Valley. And uh, and his brother Alex Mercer. Um, Oh, yeah. Fitted me. So the no one. Yeah, well, the Mercers in New South <laughs> Wales, and they just lost their father uh, recently. So, you know, it was a bit of a a, a moment of reflection uh, recently when uh, Mr. Mercer Sr. passed away. So that was a bit of a, a loss to the golfing industry in New South Wales. But he took me down to PGF headquarters, and I got measured up, and we got a one-iron through Sam Wedge. And yes. a one-iron in a short blade. It was unbelievable. And uh, nice. so I used to rock a Cobra Persimmon driver, a Cobra... Uh, persimmon three wood i remember billy dunk uh, coming up to cessnock and he took me out on the course for a playing lesson once again because he liked to drink a wine my dad had a lot of golf friends uh rocket my dad was a big wine guy in the at uh, the tyrrell family and uh, it's quite well known and very good hospitality man and looked after people very well and obviously being a golfer golf wine once that word got out that all the golfers then were became friends of my dad so he was you know <laughs> kept company with likes of jack newton jack was a, a good friend of the family and obviously jack being an ex-cessnock boy uh and the tournament that he hosted for you know every junior that's come out of the Australian golf system. Jack was close and Billy Dunk was also a friend of dad's and a customer. And he sent down, he sent Billy down to the golf club one day and we went out for a playing lesson. And he said to me, he looked at the, the Cobra uh, persimmon blocks. He said, son, never, ever get rid of those. Well, I don't have them anymore, but I've got one like that was gifted to me by uh, young Nick Mills's dad in a moment of uh, his very deep compassion for, for my sadness for not having it because I, I lost it. <laughs> like actually got stolen. But um, the other thing that happened back when I was a kid with old clubs, Rocket, were that's where the infatuation for putters came about. And uh, just to my left sitting here, you know, in this lockdown period, I've assembled my posse of putters from all points that they were gathered, some at other people's places, some in the garden shed, some in my office at work, and I've put them all in here. And uh, much to the disgust of uh, Mrs. My Love of Golf, who cannot understand why there's 35 putters sitting in a golf bag, to my left, but uh, I have been putting with the every putter that I've recollected. None of, none of them are the originals from back in my day, except the one that I've stolen from my brother, the Diver Blade. But I've got an Akushnet Bullseye there, and I remember my first Akushnet Bullseye rocket. Do you remember your first like old school putter? I had a Ping Answer too. Okay, so that was still that was new school to me. Like, and I still have it. You still you've still got the original? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I've never ba- been able to maintain my originals, but I, I had. Uh, my dad had this old thing. My from next putter is the Scotty Cameron Newport two, which I bought three years ago. That's it. I only ever had two. I lied. I had a ping answer before the ping ping. The, actually, no, a double lie. I had a ping answer. I had a ping zing two, and then I had the ping answer two, and then I had that for twenty one years. I just want to come back to the listeners and check in. Um, we had no plans to go on with about our old golf clubs, but I'm not sure if you're enjoying <laughs> this or not. And please feel free to tell us. I'm enjoying uh, recollecting in this time when I've got 35 of 
the putters that I you know had as a in my formative years, and the first one that the the ping a cushion uh, sorry the uh, tightless the cushion at bullseye. They were an unbelievable putter, and so we're talking about the one with the center shaft with the little bulb on the end, and, and that's where my dot on the top. That's where my fascinate. Oh, this one has has a line, a black line. Um, they had the big flange, the wide flange. They started to have the little. The neck was a bit more offset, and then oh, I've got, I see that putter, and I think of Johnny Miller. Yeah, well, that's what they all, all these guys putter with. And the thing is, how good did they putt with those putters? No center of gravity, you know, no lines. It was just a blade, and they used to putt the dots off the thing on bumpy greens, slow greens. But then I've got the my my very first um, ping. I always coveted a ping. My dad got a ping, and I was jealous. Um, I re- oh. I regripped it for him. In 1987, when I went to Palm Springs, I uh, went to Nevada Bob's or whatever it was called out there in the desert and bought myself a ping, a pair of ping, uh, Footjoy icons and a ping answer. <laughs> Once again, I, I, I don't have the ping answer anymore because it got stolen. But what I have is about five of, of them. Every one that I've found, I've bought. But the one that I got, the first one that I got, and there's a nice little story to this, and it sort of reflects back to old clubs. When I met my darling wife, who... Uh, we met in Edinburgh and I went, met her over there, then came home and then went back over there to see her. Uh, that was my first trip of really sort of experiencing golf in Scotland. And I thought, well, I'm not going to take my clubs. You know, that's that's not what you do. You don't take your clubs on planes. Um, well, little do I, did I know back then. And I jumped onto eBay. I thought, no, this is what I'll do. I'll buy a set of golf clubs over there and I'll buy them and I'll leave them there. So the first thing I, I found was a um, Apex, Hogan Apex uh, forged uh, no. Cavity blade things for a hundred oh, for a hundred quid. No, yeah, and uh, and they were in Edinburgh, and I got over there, and I thought I'll just get the rest when I get there. And the fella pulls up to the front of my um, then girlfriend, now wife's apartment. I go downstairs to give him his hundred quid, and he's got all his gear in the back of his boot. And I said, "Oh, what do you got there, buddy?" He said, "I've got everything. Why right, do you want some more gear?" I went, well, I've just bought the irons. I'm going to have to go out and shopping in a minute. But he said, "Well, here's this old Ping i2 driver." Take that. Thank you very much. Oh, ISI. Sorry, not I2. I wish it wasn't I2. Oh, yeah, yeah. The ISI Metalwood. Yeah, okay. Take that. Um, what about a putter? You got a putter? I said, no. Oh, here's this ping answer. You can have that for 20 quid. Beauty. And he said, if you take them both, I'll throw in the bag. Fantastic. And uh, and that was that's my ping answer, my first ping answer. I've now got several of them. Um, what did you do with the Apex Irons? Yeah, well. You left them over there. No, I didn't. Because no. I thought, well, I've got a deal here. I brought them back and I sold them to a, a member slash mate slash you know, still a member and a mate down at Mornington, um, and tripled my money. It's fantastic. I work. <laughs> Maybe that's why I got into golf retailing. I don't know, but uh, <laughs> I, 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 once again, I wish I still had those clubs, but I don't. <laughs> There's a couple of other special putters in there, Rocket, which I'll lament for a moment while everyone's indulging. There's a ping, uh, one that I've been putting with on this perfect putt practice mat, and if you want a perfect putt practice mat for home, I can't recommend them more. They're unbelievable. Um, that's the one that uh, Dustin Johnson and Paige Spironich uses. That's not an endorsement because I bought mine. The pin cushion. My first. Oh, the old school. It's old school, old school. Yeah. So the pin cushion. Uh, so it's a like a heel shafted blade, but it's got the heel toe weighted and a little bit yep. of a shaft offset. And I've been putting with that and putting the lights out. And it's like I can't, on principle, can't go to, back to a putter that, that, that is that old when I've got all these couple of Scott, nice Scotty Cameron's kicking about, but I'm putting the dots off it. But that was... <laughs> The first pro that I ever got lessons off was of chaplain of Ian Watkins, who was the pro at Cessnock. Don't know what happened to Ian Watkins, but he was an ex-rugby league player, also a golf pro, and he had the weirdest putting stroke you had ever seen, this massive sort of hook stroke, which got me fascinated with trying putting with a hook stroke. But I, I loved this putter, and I used to look after his pro shop, so he would um, go out and play, and then I'd look after the pro shop, or if he was off 
Sunday doing something else, I'd look after the pro shop. And I remember I'd always take the putter out of his bag. He had sporting top flights like Mick Ferroni's, you know, those ones that he had at the rollback. I'd always take his putter out of his bag, go out into the putting green and have a putt while he wasn't there. And what he'd do is drive in the back way and park in his house, which was part of the golf course, and then walk through and surprise me to see if I was doing my job and I was on the putting green with his putter. He used to go nuts. But anyway, I've got one of those two rocket. Why did we go down that track? I do not know, but there we go. That's showing our age and... If you are, we could do. We could actually do a full episode on our equipment. I reckon. I could do. Well, it's pertinent because you know you were talking to me off air before, and you know talking to Maddie and talking to all the other. I'm well, not talking to, but listening to all the other podcasts that you listen to. It's it's been topical of late. You know this once again this rollback and this equipment and what do you think is going to happen, Rocket? You know, is it bifurcation? Is it the ball? Is it a both? Is it what are they going to do? Uh, it's the or nothing. Ball. The ball, right? Well, the thing is, though, they either have to do something or do nothing. If they do nothing, it will just go unchecked. Um, so they have to do something with the ball um, to make it spin again. Because as soon as it starts to spin, that means then your error rate, as soon as you get to a high swing speed and distance, that increases. And they have to do something with the driver. As simple as that. So they have to do something with the driver in terms of making the head either smaller um, because they will continue to advance it to lessen the, we'll call it the error from a mishit drive because basically now you can hit the ball pretty much anywhere on that face and it will still pump its way somewhere out down near the fairway. Mm. So for the average punter, it's really good. But it, what it means is that for the for the professional, they can swing at that thing with absolute just no fear. And that's it. The driver used to be the hardest club in the bag. And, you know, I was thinking about it again myself when I was younger. One of the things that, um, you know, we'll call it me channeling the shark, is that one of the things that, I prided myself on was the ability to just pull a driver out whenever I wanted, regardless of how wide or narrow the hole was and, and play that way. And just, um, but the thing is that when you become like a professional and all of a sudden you dominate a course and you, you and everyone else can swing without fear, there's a, there's a difference between actually having skill and being able to swing without fear. Um, so skill is I I have an advantage over 98% of the field because I know that I, I'm confident enough to just take a driver on the narrowest of holes because I feel like I'm the longer straighter driver or I'm a straighter driver, I'll just hit it. And it's like, you know, Greg Norman in his day was probably the longest straightest driver. Nowadays, you don't have to be the straightest driver because now, you know, call it the bomb and gouge. It's not about straight. It's like, how far can you get this thing down there? Get it on the right side of the fairway to give yourself the best angle in. That means because you're closer to the green, that means you're not hitting, you're not hitting a six iron from gnarly rough. You're hitting a wedge. And so you just blast away to drive. It doesn't matter. It literally does not matter. And that was proven in the U S open U S open roughs a little bit different. Like if this was at Torrey Pines, he would struggle. Like you look at him at Olympia fields, he struggled because the rough there is Bermuda and it's just, it is really thick, gnarly stuff. 
We've talked about this before a number of times and, you know, with the rollback episode, we dedicated uh, a whole episode to um, Will and Matt talking about their thoughts around it. And, you know, whether I'm a fence sitter or not, you know, obviously I've got a foot in every camp, you know, your camp talking about this, the golf manufacturers camp who, you know, I represent in many, many respects. Um, for me, you know, the answer – one of the answers can only be bifurcation. Oh, I actually don't think it has to be. If they just changed, if they did something with a ball and something with a driver, that means once you start, it, it make it so that as your swing speed gets higher again, it it's harder for you to control the golf ball as you get longer. And you can, if you swing harder, like if you swing at 125 miles an hour, that means your error rate, your Error mar, um, margin of error should be narrower than someone that swings at 115. I understand, but now, but now that doesn't exist. It's the same. The argument is, is you know, taking the, the enjoyment factor of the amateurs away, and I think there's less. I, I actually don't think. I actually don't think if you did. So even if you did something with the golf ball with the dimples, and and the driver, yeah, the average person, if you it would have such a small impact, like a minimal impact on the on the average person. I think equipment of a lot of the equipment advancements in the last ten years have probably made the game a lot better for the average person, mm. um, especially with some of the irons and the the forgiveness and stuff like that, uh, and, and obviously the woods in terms of being able to hit them and the um, miss hits going better. But the thing is, though, that's also then translated into the professional game. So even if they made some changes with the driver, um, I actually don't think that'll impact. You know, let's say if it impacts the, the the top 1%, it'll impact them greatly. I think the average person at, at our club, it would not impact them a lot, if at all. Mm. And the golf ball, I actually don't think it'll impact them as much. And if anything, here's the other thing. Let's say if it does and makes courses longer, we move the tees up. Yeah. What it's I was, easier to move the tees up than it is to move well, them back. You can't move them back. The, you know, and there's not every club in the world can spend, you know, the sorts of money that uh, Augusta National and, you know, Wingfoot and all of that have spent on yeah. extending course lengths um, to cater for what yeah. we're talking about. Yep. What, what I was going to say before is, is you know, the, it's a, I think it's a perception that, you know, this taking away of something like the ball, or changing it, not taking away, but changing it, changing the driver would reduce the enjoyment for, you know, the everyday golfer. The everyday golfer at the moment, you know, very few, very few or a a growing minority as we get older, as we age, have experienced what you and I have experienced and more so me, less so you, but, you know, definitely, you know, 300, you know, CC drivers below. The game was at its heights back then. There was more people playing. No one was walking around going, oh, this drive is terrible. You know, everyone was having fun. You know, it's it's just all relative to what you've got, I guess. But I, I don't see how golf would be any less enjoyable. I don't. And, 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 the, and the thing with the current golf ball and the current drivers, the only actual advantage, distance advantage, comes once you swing the golf club over 110 miles per hour. Yeah, right. That's when your true distance advantage comes. For every mile over, that's another, I think it's three to five yards. Yeah. 
lucky I'm in those echelons, uh, Rocket. That's all I can say. Oh, I'm gonna. I've been uh, getting the stick out. The, um, <laughs> the wibbly, the wibbly wobbly stick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Been try- <laughs> no, I'm yeah. not. I'm not really in those echelons, people. Sorry, I'm maybe 107. But yeah, whatever. I want to get back there. 100, 107 and a half. But who's counting? Yeah, I think I, I think the last time I had a crack, I was like at 108. Okay, I'm 108 and a half then. I think I was 108, but I think my I think my um my angle of attack was a little bit flat. Well, that could help in in a in some scenarios, Rocket. Now, once again, we had no intention of talking about any of that. We've we were digressed. we were, <laughs> this is going to be a quick fire episode. I, to I, uh, I promised Mrs. I promised Mrs. Rocket this wouldn't take too long. <laughs> Oops. Um, I'm in, I'm in deep doo doo. Rocket, it's nine thirty. It's it's ten o'clock, mate. What else have you got on? Or, or, oh, oh, sorry, I shouldn't ask. It's, it's Betty Barbie's time. Is it a special Monday night treats rocket? <laughs> oh, jeez. Um, we were supposed to be digesting some of the golf uh, very quickly, short, sharp episode, and we've gone twenty-seven minutes of waffling on. I know. We'll, we'll try and make the other stuff really fast. Uh, some great golf on on the weekend. Um, I watched quite a bit of the European Tour, which. Resumed after the US Open, played over at Galgorm Castle in Northern Ireland. It was the, the Dubai Duty Free Irish Open at uh, Ballymena in Northern Ireland. So Ballymena is north of Dublin, on the way up to Royal Portrush, etc., um, up in that beautiful part of uh, Northern Ireland, which is part of the United Kingdom. And a Lynx tournament. So they were back into the bubble. Uh, so it wasn't Lynx. Um, it was more of a parkland uh, sort of style course with some linksy type features, but uh, there was some water features and uh, things like that. But I would have said it's more parkland. But they were back in that bubble, obviously, where they could control uh, that um, COVID bubble environment, which is allowing the European tour to continue. I watched quite a bit of it. I went to bed at about two o'clock last night. Herbie had just had a couple of birdies to make up for his double bogey, which happened early in his round, which I think really took the wind took the wind out of his sails, and it was probably an avoidable birdie, uh, an avoidable double bogey. Don't know what happened there. He changed clubs. Um, I'm not sure if he went up a club or down a club, but shot it through the back, just pulled up short of the water hazard over the back, and then you know three putted and made a six. But um, that was the 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 part of his round that sort of got him off the rails. But what I noticed is that. The winner, I think, has learnt to win and learnt what it takes. Johnny Caitlin. Yeah, has learnt what it takes to win. And when I did go to bed, now I'm not saying this in a boastly sort of way, but I I thought if there's anyone going to win here, it's probably going to be him because he knows how to win. You know, when you win against Martin Keimer at Valderrama a couple of weeks ago and then I think finished T8th or whatever it was last week and had a couple of strong finishes, he was the one that knew how to win. And the other guys just didn't look like they wanted to win, you know, Aaron Rye led from start to pretty much halfway through the final round, just was playing a little bit nervily. Young Maverick Ancliffe was up there. Joe Dirt. Joe, why do you call it Maverick Ancliffe, Joe Dirt? I don't know. I was looking up a photo because I'm like, who is this guy? Who is this Australian? No, he's had a hair he's, he's got a little bit of David Spade meets yeah, Bill Glass. No, he's had, he's had know, a Joe Dirt. He's had a hair trim, mate, and he's sharpened right up. He's a fine-looking young man. And I, uh, I didn't watch any of his broadcasts, so, any of the, any of the um, broadcasts, so I didn't know if he's had a haircut. I just looked at the Google images and I went, oh, Joe Dirt. 
no, he's, he, was, he was looking sharp and he's wearing some Lacoste gear and he just looked uh, a million bucks. And well, he's tied for ninth last week. He's in some form. Yeah, no, no, he looked a million bucks. And um, the, the, his pants, choice of pants, uh, draw a lot of commentary from the uh, the commentary team because they had a pinch, pinch stripe. Oh, that, no, that was just a pair of green pants. But um, they had a pinch stripe, a white stripe, and they were a little bit you know cuffed at the ankle and a bit short. And, you know, yeah, we don't know if they're short longs or long shorts these days. We don't know what these young ones wear. So whatever, get over it, guys. But uh, he looked great. But um, once again, didn't. You know, didn't really get the job done, obviously. Uh, Jazz Jane wanting and on. Another thing that the commentators like to talk a lot about was the pronunciation of wanting and on. his name. Just call him Jazz. Just going it up. Well, that's what the leaderboard we'll said. Do, we'll just JJ. The leaderboard had Jazz on there, but, uh, you know, every time they crossed to him, they're just missing pronouncing his name and then talking about his name and it's just, just wanting and on. Or than trying to listen to Paul Azinger talk about. Bryson and the scientists and the scientifics. But anyway, it was good to see that tournament. Uh, Catlin won. He's a winner. Interesting backstory, or not so much of an interesting backstory, but he's come through the Asian tour, the Canadian tour. You know, hasn't yeah. been on the PGA tour, but these couple of wins have certainly raced him up but in. I don't think he's. I don't think he made it on the PGA tour. I thought he's only just made it out. He didn't. I yeah. think he like, yeah. made some play for some corn fairy stuff, but yeah, no, he, most of no, his he hasn't time in Canada and yeah. and Asia hasn't played. Uh, that's. I think that's what I did. So I hope I did say he didn't hasn't played on the PGA Tour, but yeah, oh, okay, sorry. Canadian Tour, Asian Tour, one over there. You know, he's beaten Jazz Jane um, a couple of times uh, in his wins in in Asia. So you know, he's not unfamiliar to these guys, and hopefully, you know, he's twenty nine. He's not young, but he's not old. Confidence, right? You yeah. just you you get your breakthrough. You realise, geez, I can actually do this. No, he's a pl- he, he can play. He can play, and, and he's learned how to win. And you know, it wasn't an easy course. It wasn't super low scoring. You know, they fattened up the rough. So, you know, if you didn't hit it straight on the fairway, you had a big, you know, chunky rough light. wasn't, you know, dry. It was a bit wet. You know, it's coming into sort of spring over there. It was a bit cold. All that sort of thing was going on. So, um, yeah, it was good. But then they moved to one of my favourite courses of all time this uh, week over in East Lothian, over at... Uh, Scottish Open. Gullen, it's between Gullen and North Berwick. So it's in that Scottish Gulf Coast, a little, little village of Diddleton. Uh, the Renaissance Club, which is a dope course. The Renaissance course, um, for those that don't know, is owned by um, a wealthy American family. Uh, they bought the land over there. They love Scotland. Uh, or they didn't buy it. I think they've got like a 100-year lease or something like that. I don't know exa- exactly the story. But uh, they got Tom Doak over there to build his first Scottish Lynx course, which I, be- I believe the story goes that Tom didn't want to go to Scotland and, and build a Lynx because, you know, how do you, how do you beat the guys that built original Lynxes, but they finally convinced Tom to come and build his Lynx and I've played the course. Fantastic job. It yeah, was, I've listened to an interview of him where he, he actually said no three or four times. Yeah. And uh, it's a, it's on a great part of land, which is, sits right next door to Muirfield. So if you look over the left-hand side of the one boundary, you've got Muirfield. Uh, if you look over the right-hand side of the other boundary, you've he got... spoke about that. He goes, how can I build a golf course well, next to Muirfield? Yeah, Are well, that was, me? that was his thing. That was that was the thing, so I'm, I'm led to believe. Archerfield Links, uh, which is another new style uh, course, 36 holes on the right-hand side, and then down from that, you've got North Berwick. So you, know, you basically start at Dunbar, North Berwick, uh, the Glen, um, Archerfield, two courses, Renaissance, Muirfield, Gullen number one, two, and three, Luff Ness. Oh, terrible. Craigie Law, Kilspindy, 
It's terrible. It's a really, really awful place to have to spend a couple of weeks, Rocket, so you should go there and I can't wait to get back there when we can travel. But looking forward to the Scottish Open, uh, not sure what the field is. I know Herbie's playing, Ian Poulter's, Poulter's playing. Flying over. Yep. He's flying over. He's over. Hopefully his clubs turn up. His clubs went missing. <laughs> ended, ended up back in Florida. The kids have sent them back across, so that was good. Um, so I'm looking forward to seeing that. What did you pick up on the weekend's golf, Rocket? Oh, I legitimately didn't watch a lot. I tried to. Um, I wasn't watching a lot of late night stuff. I think I was, I'd had a tough work week, so I was trying to decompress. I think I spent more time watching Netflix comedy specials and I just kept an eye on the scores um, because especially the Dominican Republican ones, some of the, you know, I don't know, didn't excite me. I think I've just, after you've watched Wingfoot and that US Open, it's very hard to back up. So, like the professionals, you know, I was cooked. Yeah, and obviously it's the start of the new season uh, for those guys. So you you get the feel uh, that uh, there's a, you know quite a few of the guys that are you know trying to make up some some ground early on, you know, to get some status and, and get some points under the board. So, but well, uh, like over in you know if we go to the um, you know the US event that was on, which is down in the Dominican Republic, you know, person getting um, points up on the board. And backing up, you know, a few decent weeks. Um, our man Cam Percy finished T eighth. Yep. Uh, had a good final round. Um, and the winner there, Hudson Swafford. Um, I don't know. I, I know he's been on tour for a while, not not a long time. I don't know a lot about him. Um, but you know, it's good to see these other players. Getting in the limelight, he'll get a start in next year's Masters. Um, cranks out some more points. It's a two-year exemption on tour, so you know the victories are really important for these players. You know, early on in their career to just try and establish establish themselves so they can kind of make their own um, schedules and stuff like that, and they're not being pressed to try and make a certain amount of money to get their 125. So um, that helps. You know, interesting ones, like, you know, the second place finisher, Tyler McCumber, Mark McCumber's son. So, you know, he's been, you know, I've heard a few people sort of talking about him. I, again, I don't know much of his history. Um, I think he's been coming through on the Corn Ferry, um, like uh, the other person now, our uh, good performer, Will Zalatoris. Um, who played well again this week as well. Yeah. So, you know, that's the other thing. You know, see some of these other younger players that are coming through the Corn Ferry getting a start on the PGA Tour with all the strange schedules. And that even lends itself to another thing. You get some of these younger players that, you know, they're tearing it up on on the Corn Ferry. Why why don't they elevate them, you know, onto the, onto the um, primary tour? Like they're just tearing it up. Like Will Zalatoris... I was doing a bit more research post US Open and he's won a couple of times already this year. He's like absolutely just shredding it on the Corn Ferry. And and then you see, you know, the quality of the player. He finishes tie for six at the US Open, yet he's still stuck on the Corn Ferry Tour. Like, why can't, if, if you've got a young player like that playing really well, why can't you elevate them? So how would they do that? You know, do you think they could keep spots there for, you know, the top X amount of Corn Ferry players? Nah, they'll, just, they, they'll just still, they'll just, they won't 
it'll be if there's a spot or you qualify yeah. and you get a sponsor's exemption, that's how you get in. You know, he, he probably got into this week off the back of maybe his performance last week or it might have been just a small field. So he was able to get a spot. You but think, if this was a normal season, he probably wouldn't get a start. You think it's just too big a demarcation dispute for the guys that do have cards to say, you know, we don't want those guys playing here unless they're you know, legitimately qualified. We don't want spots available for them, even as a bit of a character or an incentive or a sweetener for them to come up and play on the big stage. In, in events like this, yep. th- there should be at least five to ten spots held for possibility of elevating Corn Ferry players up because some of the um, players that get starts in some of these events, they should not even be playing. You know, much often talked about and ridiculed on couple of my podcasts that I enjoy, JJ Henry has been getting starts off the back of, you know, he made, he's made 300 cuts. Mm. You know, versus you've got a Tyler McCumber and a Will Zalatoris who's kid in the twenties and they could be a next superstar, but you know, and, and here's the thing is that when those players get hot, you actually want them to be on tour because they can make their mark. You know, when they're hot, you don't want them to, to, go ice cold at the, you know, while they're on the secondary tour, you kind of want to elevate them up while they're hot and give something, give something back to the fans. It's not bringing the, 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 the problem is though, is that the points don't transfer over, right? Yeah. Let's say if they go and play a tour event as like just an elevate, they've just elevated them just for that, that week. You don't actually, it actually can hurt them because any money they earn there doesn't carry yeah. over. Yep. down to the secondary tour. So they've got to figure out something to make it a bit more flexible. But if you want a shot and you want to take the risk and you want to forego, maybe that's maybe the carrot's big enough to... Well, that's it. But at the same time, they should they should elevate more of these younger guys. It's like giving the reserves a, you know, a run in the, in the footy team, you know. You've got to, you've yeah. got to, you've got to give them a show, a show sometimes, right? Yeah, yeah anyway. exactly. exactly. Uh, I'm sure your uh, friends down at Pontevedra have all this worked out and they have several sure. meetings a week to talk about topics like this. And, but if they do want to reach out rocket, you know, they you can probably just they know, where, they know where I am. DM you. Yeah. And now that you sound so wonderful with the new uh, equipment this <laughs> week, Rock, I'm, I can't wait. I can't wait to listen to this one when you publish it, just to see if it actually sounds better. <laughs> <laughs> if you are noticing the tones of Rocket improved, he's invested. He's made it. He had a management no, no, meeting. No, 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 no. The capital expenditure was approved for the uh, podcast equipment, and he's gone and kitted up with a uh, a new. Not only just a new microphone, but a, an arm and the whole boom and the shock mic and, and everything. You can't see it. We might try and get a photo, but uh, Rocket's gone full on podcast nerd. It's good. I like it. Hopefully it pays off. <laughs> Let us know. Hey, um, what else, Rocket? That's about it from, from my. I can't tell you anything more about the European tour. I'm, I'm waiting, I can't wait for the uh, Scottish Open at Renaissance, relive a few memories, bring out the old photos. I might post a couple. I think I posted a couple the other week. But, um, yeah, when the, so when on the, the US, played. we've got Sanderson We've got Sanderson Farms at Country Club of Jackson in Missouri. I think it's Missouri. Yeah, it's Missouri. Then also got the Scottish Open at Renaissance. Um, and then the women are back. So they've got the shop right um, at some club. No idea. I'm actually more excited about the week after on the women's tour where they got the women's PGA Championship at Aronimink. Another classic. Uh, who's the Who's the man behind uh, Aronimink Rocket? Donald Ross, one of the best. 
if not their and best. Restored, and restored faithfully by Gil Hans. The girls are playing some great courses, just quietly. Oh, my God. <laughs> Actually, do you know what? Between now and the Masters, like some of the, the courses that are going to be played, so after the Sanderson, some of the courses are going to be played on the PGA Tour mm. are just going to be amazing. That's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, just speaking about LPGA and Future Stars, and she's not on the LPGA, but Jamie Glazier and myself had a wonderful chat with Gabby Ruffles over the weekend, and that will come out on the Mental Mastery Golf Podcast. If you do follow us on the Mental Mastery Golf Podcast, thank you. Appreciate that. If you don't and you want to hear from Gabby Ruffles, tune in to the Mental Mastery Golf Podcast. If you want to hear from Jamie Glazier uh, about how to get your mind in the right frame of mind to play your best golf, also worth a listen um, you know, unfortunately, fortunately, you have to listen to me a little bit more. Um, not as much as this podcast because I just press the buttons and, and hit record and I think that's my job on that one. But it's if you listen nothing more than to uh, our chat with Gabby, it was uh, fantastic. It was a real pleasure to talk to uh, a fine young ambassador of Australia and Australian golf um, and she really is a future star. That was, a, that was an enjoyable part of my weekend, Rocket. Yep, she's the best player in that family. Sorry, Ryan. Oh, controversial. Always controversial. You always leave us hanging with something controversial, Rocket. Shots fired. I think Ryan follows me on Instagram now too. Oh, geez, not me. Um, Ryan, come on, give me a five. I think he follows me because I gave Jamie a bit of stick about holding ones. Oh, well, that'll... No, shanking, shanking. That'll that'll always win you... you, I think that won me me points. Well, that'll win your favour in the uh, Jamie Glazier hole-in-one, non-hole-in-one club, sorry. Yeah, but all the guys that give him stick, I think I won points with a few. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> few um, choice comments. Rocket, I think that's it. We'll wrap it up there. Thanks for listening in once again. Rocket, thanks for joining us. Keep up the good Pleasure. work. Uh, if you need some more uh, equipment, let us know. But um, great work on on finally uh, coming to the coming to the big stage with the big the big microphone, the big blue Yeti. Yeah, I, I can't <laughs> wait to hear it now. Hopefully, I don't sound like I'm in a tin shed. All right, guys. Thanks for listening and tune in to the next time we meet on the My Love of Golf podcast. Thanks again.